And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. In this podcast, I'm going to focus on two kinds of retirement distributions. Now, let me make it very clear. There are literally thousands and thousands of ways that portfolios can be put together to create regular cash flow. Everything from some combination of dividend stocks and uh, maybe an annuity, a single premium life annuity like a pension, uh, to a bucket strategy, to uh, using one of the many portfolio strategies we have. And when you decide you're going to start taking money out of that retirement account, there are so many questions, questions of how much how much money you need to take out, how big the pool is, what your risk tolerance is, what other sources of, of, of income do you have, uh, what choices are you making around Social Security when you start taking that. It, the list goes on and on. And here I sit. My relationship with you is I'm in front of my computer and a microphone and dozens and dozens and dozens of tables. And each table is meant to tell a story, a story of, of, of a historical pa- a past going back 51 years, showing the implications of, uh, let's say, the S&P 500 and how it did from 1970 through 2020 and how much it made if you had 90% of your money in bonds and 10% in the S&P 500 or 20% or 30 or 40 or 50 all the way up to all in the S&P 500. What would the worst year have looked like? What was the lowest point you got down to with the pool of money you had to last you the rest of your life? I mean, it goes on and on the things we could talk about. But I'm here to try to help you with a do-it-yourself decision that is a good decision. I just got off the phone not half an hour ago with an old friend, and uh, while I don't manage his money anymore, he wanted to do something on his own without his advisor and to do one of these strategies that I've been talking about lately. But I know a lot about him. I know about his needs for cash. I know about uh, the two kids he has to raise on his own. And I mean, it's a a personal story. And so when he asked me for advice, I said, well, just a minute. I'm going to send you one table. And on that table is the information that is going to help us make the decision. So I sent him one table. I didn't have to go through the ultimate buy and hold uh, to, you know, to show the 10 different equity asset classes. Didn't have to get into the fine tuning. Didn't have to choose between uh, six or seven or eight different portfolios. Didn't have to choose how much should be in fixed income. I knew enough about him. I could just send him the table. We talked about it for about five minutes. And away he went <laughs> to go do it on his own. And I feel very confident. He knows I'm not his investment advisor. We make that very clear. Uh, I'm a friend simply trying to give him a gentle shove in the right direction. So here I am 
ready to go to work with you personally, but without having all the facts about you. And every once in a while, you send me one of these two or three page letters that tells me all the facts about you. And unfortunately, I'm not really in a position to help, but I am here to help right now. And this is this and the next next week's presentations are two of my favorite because the decision is so unbelievably important. You're talking about retiring and you have a pot of money. And the question is, how much money can I take out so that I maximize my enjoyment of life while I maximize the protection that I'll have the cash flow I need for the rest of my life. And I'm not in a position to go back to work and get myself back on the payroll and take care of any shortfall I come up with. Maybe I could in the next month or two, but I certainly couldn't do it 10 or 15 or 20 years from now. So... We produced and we started producing these tables uh, 20 plus years ago. And it's as many more tables today than we had then. But I'm going to take you through a couple of tables. In fact, in the narrative about this, this particular uh, presentation, there's a list of, of uh, pages that I would like you to have printed out and be able to refer to. And I'll, I'll try my best for those of you who are out walking and just want to get the gist of this thing. I'll do my best to give that to you. But for people who are actually facing this decision, I'm hoping that what I will give you in the next few minutes will help you sit down, think of your situation, think of what you trust of all the things I've talked about, all S&P 500, worldwide ultimate buy and hold strategy, and then the simple four-fund worldwide strategy or the all-U.S. four-fund strategy or the all-value portfolio in the equity portion of the portfolio. Absolutely a legitimate decision one could make because the difference between the risk of the all-value portfolio and the, and the ultimate buy-and-hold portfolio, the, the, the differences are, are not great. So let's start, if, if we could. Let's start with table number 10. Now let's remember again what we've gone through. We started out looking at a whole bunch of equity asset classes, and the one that we started with, 100% of our money, was sitting in the S&P 500. And since this is the benchmark, I would like to use this page, Table 10, Fixed Distribution Schedule, S&P 500. This is very conservative. That's what we call it. Very conservative. And it's based on the idea of taking out 3% a year. And that 3% in this particular case is of a million dollars, so that is $30,000. And that is the money you have to live on. 
and you want that money plus an, an addition of inflation each year, or it could be a subtraction of deflation, but that every year the cost of living goes up, you will take more money. So that in this particular study, starting in 1970, ending in 2020, the $30,000 it costs to meet that that necessary cost of living, this is for all the basics, that would have grown to $194,000 over this 51-year period. Now, I know a lot of you are saying, wait a minute, I've only got uh, 15, 20 years until retirement. Why should I be concerned about 51 years worth of data? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Because I don't know what the next 15 years you're going to live through are going to look like. It could look like the first 15 years of that 1970 through 2021 period. It could look that way, or it could look like the last 15 years. And so we have lots of 15 years to look at. On the other hand, there are people part of the what they call the FIRE movement. They're trying to retire at age 40. They're trying to retire at age 50. In either case, they could, in fact, be around for another 50 years. So it could be a legitimate period to look at. But we believe that the longer the period we have that we can look at, the more legitimate the statistical information is. So we have this 51 years, starting with 30,000, which eventually grows in order to support that cost of living to 194,000. And we are going to support it with a combination of equity and fixed income that could go from anything in all bonds to all stocks. Now, it is kind of interesting to note, if I go to the column that says 100% bonds, I start this 51-year period with a million dollars. Now, invariably, somebody will say, oh, who's going to ever have a million dollars to do this? Well, you know something? The reason I like a million dollars is, one, because a lot of people will have that or a large part of that or more. And those that have less, let's say they have 500000 to do this with. You cut all the numbers in half. You've got 600000 You cut them by 40%. So it's easy to translate into your situation if you wish to do that. But I think you're going to get the idea. Because if somebody put a million dollars into bonds in 1970, and this was a this was a short to intermediate term, no long term bonds in this particular bond portfolio. All governments, all governments, because when there 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 is a serious catastrophic event, you do want governments instead of corporates, at least historically in most cases. When we look over this fifty one year period, in fact, let's not even go out that far. Let's just go out ten years. At the end of 10 years, that bond portfolio, while it spit out the money it had to spit out, starting with 30, in fact, by the end of that decade, the distribution was 50, over $51,000. 
Inflation was much higher then than it is now. But it ended with about almost 1.6 million. At the end of the next decade, at which point, by the way, the payout was $91,000 for 1989, the portfolio had continued to grow to $3.7 million. At the end of the next 10 years, $5.8 million. At the end of the what they call the lost decade with the S&P 500, $8,500,000. And finally, at the end of this 51-year period, the original $1 million investment, having paid out $5.6 million in distributions, still had $9 million left. Now, the reason that worked, there are several reasons. One is interest rates were much higher. The, the compound rate of return of this short to intermediate term uh, strategy, 7.2%. Well, when you look at the last decade uh, or the last 10 years, uh, yeah, the first year, 2011, started with 7.7 and, and ended with 8.3. In fact, 2019 was 7.6. But the other years were 0. 0.8, 1.6, 2.1, 0.8, 2.3, minus 3.6, 2.4. So it was not a great 10 years for fixed income. So that was kind of the experience. You were able with an all-bond portfolio and a million dollars to generate $5.6 million and to be left over with nine, for, nine million for heirs. That was, a, that was a great outcome. And at no point along the way in an all-bond portfolio did you feel at risk. That's great, by the way. On the other hand, if you had, and I'm going to jump two columns here. I'm going to jump to a column that is headed 20 slash 80, which means 20% in equities, 80% in bonds. Now, that portfolio did the same thing. It, it went up every 10 years. And as a matter of fact, at the end of the first 10 years, it had almost exactly the same amount as the all-bond portfolio. So no advantage to equities then. And at the end of the next decade, almost no advantage. About 3.9 million versus 3.8. By the end of the third decade, it was 7.9 to 6.8 now. Advantage, definitely, that 20% in equities, only 20%. And by the time you got to the end of the fourth decade, 10.9 million, and then at the end of the entire period, 16.8 million versus 9.5. A huge difference for your heirs. And that's not all, that's not all bad. So, as you move across this page, the reason I want you to see this, Table 10, is to see that every time you move to the right, 
more equities. It produces a larger bottom line return. And remember, you are taking out a minimal amount of money. And at no, at no point, theoretically, should you be at, 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 at discomfort. And yet, when I look at the 100% stock, all S&P 500, no fixed income. I see here that at the end of 1974, that account was down to $765,000. Now, whereas the person at that point that was all in the bonds was sitting on $1.3 million, you're down to $765,000. You're not, you're not sure you made the right decision. Maybe you'll keep going that way and maybe you won't. Well, we do know now, now, because there's no risk in the past. We know the market turned around, and by the end of that decade, your all-stock portfolio was up to $1.2 million. Chicken feed compared to the $1.6 million almost that you had in the all-fixed income. And it wouldn't be surprising me to learn that somebody might be suggesting to the other, to the spouse, wouldn't we be better off over there in that bond strategy? Looks like a lot better deal to me. And by the way, even at the end of the next decade, the 100% S&P 500, yes, it grew to $4 million, but that all-bond portfolio is sitting there with $3.7 million. And again... I can imagine people even in by 1989 were probably still worried about another collapse like 73 and 74. Those collapses, those big, huge bear markets leave scars for decades sometime. But by the end of the next decade, the S&P 500 is up to 18 million versus 5.8 for the bonds. And then next decade, 14.8. Wait a minute. Are you saying that you went from 18 million down to 14.8 million while you were getting your monthly paycheck or your annual distribution? And that is exactly what happened while the good old fixed income was just chunking right along, producing decent income. Well, in fact, the, basically the same income. They were exactly the same. But at the end of this 51-year period, the S&P 500, all stocks now, $57.7 million compared to 9.5 for the very, very safe and sane strategy, all in fixed income. And when you're talking about taking out 3%, even with inflation adjustments, that is a level that Almost everybody in the industry will say that you can put your money in almost any traditional lower risk in investment and, and, and be okay. Now, we'll, we'll see. It gets tougher if you take out more money. So this is assuming that you're going to use some combination of fixed income and S&P 500, probably not going to be all in the S&P 500, probably not going to be all in fixed income. What my wife and I have is 
a 50-50 strategy, not using the S&P 500, but we'll be showing the implications of using the ultimate buy and hold strategy. That's what we use. But at the end of this period of time, well, in fact, let me just talk about the 50-50 and we'll go one decade at a time. That'll kind of give you the feeling of the flow. And the 50-50 at the end of the first decade, it, it, it didn't do as well as the all bonds, but you were still at 1.4 million. And then by the end of the second decade, you're doing better than the S&P 500 and better than the 100% bonds at 4.3 million. And then at the end of the next decade, while the all bonds is at 5.8, you're at 11.7. And then for the next decade, you're at 13.8, bonds at 8.5. And finally, at the bottom of the page, 51 years since the beginning, having taken out uh, 5.6 million, you're left with 31.5 million versus 9.5, and that is with 50% of your money in bonds. Now that is actually, that strategy 50-50, it is too aggressive for some investors because it is likely to expose people along the way to a, a loss of about 20 to 25%. And, uh, and so this is, this is the, the conservative way, conservative in every way, conservative in that you're only taking out $30,000, conservative in that you could be 50-50 stocks and bonds and do beautifully, uh, conservative that even if you had all your money in bonds, you would have done just fine. So what are the highlights of this trip? The highlight really is that even with just a little bit of equity in the portfolio, uh, that you can produce substantially higher returns than you're going to get with an all-bond portfolio. And if you go all the way to 50% in bonds, you would have not only a strategy that produced about three times what the all fixed income did at the end, around almost 10 million to over 31 million. But you never got down below the point that you started with the 50-50. And by the way, you could have, you could have started out first couple of years, market heading down instead of up. But because you had those bonds, you never went below that initial $1 million Whereas with the S&P 500, at one point you had to suffer about a 25%, almost 25% decline from the peak. And I know that would have left some people uh, worried uh, about being able to have enough money to last for the rest of their life. Now I call that very conservative, 3%. Now, we could choose to be aggressive in how you invested it for the 3%, or you could choose to be conservative. But let's talk about what we would call, again with the S&P 500, looking at table 11 now. Let's look at what we call 
the conservative, and we call it conservative because instead of taking out the 30,000, 3%, which is very conservative, we take out 40,000 or 4%. And that is the number that most of us have heard that, that is a conservative extraction rate. And uh, and I want to just I just want to before I get into these numbers I want to remember what we ended up with before in the all bonds nine million in the fifty fifty thirty one million in the hundred percent equity fifty seven million now as we look at this new page. Before we fool around with the little figures at the top, I want to go right to the bottom while those numbers are fresh. Remember before we talked about all bonds being up $9 million? By increasing your, your, your extraction, your distribution rate by $10,000 or 1% on this million, you, are ended, you end up with $1.3 million instead of $9 million. Now, to be fair, that's 51 years of, of, of returns and distributions. I can tell you at 77, I'm not worried about 51 years. But that's what the long-term impact was of the, of the 1% higher distribution rate. If I look at the 50-50 strategy, instead of being left with 31 million, left with 11 million because of that 1% difference. That's the only thing that's changing. We're not changing the stocks that you hold or the bonds that you hold or the percentages of stocks and bonds you hold. It's the same thing. It's the distribution rate. Now, let's go back to that topic of how far you go down before you turn around and go back up. Well, obviously... If you got down below 800,000 before, you're still going to be below 800,000. In fact, with the 4% distribution rate, you get down to $725,000. So this is putting more pressure on the portfolio. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, I also noticed that during that first decade, in five of the years, you were below your million dollar initial investment. Now, the next for the next 40 years you do fine. You may not end up with 57 million, but you did end up with 17 million. 40 million dollars less because you took out an extra 1%. This is the very reason I fight for every half a percent on the upside we can get and every way to protect against every half a percent to the downside that would do, in essence, the, the same thing. It would re reduce, we want to reduce the expenses and we want to increase the return. It's all about looking for every way we can to make sure you get what you got coming to you. And before we leave this page, I want to note one more thing. There was still an advantage to that extra 20% in equities. In fact, not even an extra 20, but 20% 20 
If, in fact, you had all your money in fixed income that entire period, you ended up with $1.1 million. On the other hand, if you had just 20% in equities, 80% in fixed income, instead of the $1.1 million you would have had with the all-fixed income, with that 20%, $4.65 million. So about four times as much to leave to others, assuming you live that long. Now I want to move on to table number 12. Still the S&P 500, uh, but instead of a $40,000 distribution rate at the beginning of this 51-year period, we're going to make it a 50 So another 1% grab from the portfolio. And I think it'll be pretty obvious as you look at this page, if you're looking at it, there is not one of the columns, whether it's 100% bonds, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100% in equities, nothing made it to the bottom of the page. You ran out of money. Um, well, the first one ran out of money at about 26 years. And then by the 35th year, everybody was out of money. So yes, you might've been able to enjoy some more money, but it didn't last your whole lifetime if you lived more than about 25 or uh, uh, 35 years. And now I suspect It's not going to come as a shock when you look at table 13 to see that if you take out 60,000, we started at 30, then 40, then 50, and now 60, uh, that you are basically out of money after about, uh, oh, it looks like about 17 to 22 years. So uh, if you didn't have many years left and you knew that and you weren't worried about leaving a lot of money to other people, yes, you could take out 6%. Uh, you run the risk they find a miracle cure, but maybe, maybe you won't worry about that if you, ha- if you have a, mir- a miracle cure. So you can see that by changing the amount of fixed income and equity, that is going to cause changes in what you're going to have to leave and spend. And you can see that by how much you take out, that is going to have an impact as to how much you're going to you're going to spend and that you're going to leave to others. Those things, how much you take out, how much you have in equities and fixed income, those things you have control of. And you also have control over the equity asset classes you choose to use for whatever growth you're going to have in your portfolio. And what I would like to show you is some of that using the ultimate buy and hold strategy. And as you remember, that, that is, means holding those 10 different equity, port, equity funds, both U.S. and international, large, small, value, growth, REITs, emerging markets, U.S. international. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's massive diversification. And I'm going to focus on one of the tables having to do with the ultimate buy and hold worldwide, 
50-50. Remember, we also have uh, tables that go uh, along for those who are going to be 70% U.S. Uh, and 30% in the internationals. But this is 50-50 U.S. international with a $40,000 starting amount. And uh, the one number that's not going to change is the one that represents the 100% bonds. And that ended the 51-year period with $1.1 million. And when we look at the other side of the page, 100% all equities, ultimate buy and hold strategies, you end with $150.8 million. That, by the way, is compared to $17 million with the S&P 500. And you may or may not recall the difference in return, but I believe it was about 1.5% a year. Uh, compounding. Uh, it just has this amazing impact. Uh, by the way, it's fair to say that in this particular study, it shows that you as an investor having started with a million dollars, would have uh, taken out over the next 51 years $7.5 million. I suspect if you're sitting on a $150 million, somewhere along the way here, you took out more money. But we've got to try to keep this apples to apples as best we can. And then in between these two sides, from the very, very conservative to the very, very aggressive all-equity portfolio, you can see the 50-50. The 50-50 ended up with $42 million. The 60-40, 10% more equity, ended up with $57 million. Now, I know these sound like outrageous numbers, but it's because you're leaving most of the money in there to grow, and there are no, no taxes here. This would be, uh, in, in theory, using uh, a Roth 401k, a Roth IRA to live on. And most of us in retirement are not going to live for 51 years, but if we went out 30 years, 30 years would not be an impossibility. The 100% bonds at 3 million, 0.1. The 50-50 at about 13 million. The 60-40 at about 16 million. And the all stock, 31 million. As opposed to the S&P 500 of 8.3 million at that point. So once again, we're taking out $7.5 million over 51 years, starting with 40000 By the way, at the end of that 51 years, it took, again, $259,000 to replace that 40000 And as you think about these gigantic ending numbers, when you compare the S&P 500 to the ultimate buy and hold and and we'll compare at least one more here in just a second. But realize that the risk differences, the losses that were sustained in the worst of times over this 51-year period with the worldwide uh, strategy or the four-fund worldwide strategy or the 
all value. When you look at these, the, the, the risks were not that great. Now, I want to move on to uh, table number 23A. And uh, 23A is the fixed distribution schedule using the worldwide four fund strategy. Again, 50-50, and we're going to use the conservative $40,000 a year distribution amount. Now, we've tried to turn this inside out for you to show you uh, the differences between the ultimate buy and hold and the worldwide four fund strategy that is is built very much the same, giving access to the same value percentage and the same blend, large and small blend, and large and small value uh, as the other portfolio. Uh, but uh, let's look at these numbers. Uh, we're talking about the same 51-year period, the same 40000 the distribution of $7.5 million over the 51 years. The bonds are going to be the same as before. Let's look at the 50-50 st uh, stocks and bonds. With the ultimate buy and hold, the 10-fund strategy, the 50-50 ended up with $41.9 million. The four-fund strategy, 44.1. If we looked at the 50-50 at the end of 10 years, 1.86 with the ultimate buy and hold, 10-fund, and with the 50-50 worldwide, 1.88. So virtually the same there. If you went out 30 years, the ultimate buy and hold 50-50 was 12.9. And in the case of the worldwide four fund, 14.1. At the end of the 51-year period, the four fund strategy ended up with 160.8 million versus 150.8 with the ultimate buy and hold. It is one of the interesting decisions that uh, uh, people like myself have to make. And that is, do I continue to hold my 10 fund strategy uh, or do I uh, reduce to the four fund strategy and believe that I will make more? Well, the fact is, if I make a little less with the 10 fund strategy, it is probably because I took a little less risk having 10 asset classes instead of four. And the other thing is you know, the problem of taxes. The ultimate buy and hold in my the portfolio my wife and I have, it is held in the taxable part of our portfolio. So there is a cost to make that change. And I'm not really sure I would make up for that cost. If I am a new investor, I still think for very large accounts, it makes sense if you're a lot into protecting as I am, that you take the 10 instead of the four. But in terms of a younger investor, 40, 50 years old, uh, boy, I'd be looking at the four fund strategies. It sure is simpler, and the returns are, let's just call them the same for the sake of discussion. 
And let's take a look at one more table. Uh, it is the table that uh, represents the, it says 27A by the way, the all value portfolio. 50-50 U.S. International, uh, the conservative strategy, again, the $40,000 distribution and increasing for inflation. To go to the bottom line, uh, just to, this is interesting. For the person who put 80% in bonds and 20% into the all-value strategy, and if you haven't seen the fine-tuning page for the all-value strategy, I hope you will. It's, again, a combination of U.S. and international, combination of large and small, small slice of emerging markets. But for the 20% in equities, 80% fixed income, the end result at the end, of this is at 51 years, is $13.7 million. Uh, that is an amazing impact of just uh, a 20% position in equities. But that's why I, I recommend for folks who would like to be all fixed income for security purposes to take a very close look at uh, having a percentage, a small percentage in equities. If we go out to 50-50, uh, that number is 55.6 million. Now let's compare that to the four fund strategy. That was 44 million. So it added over $10 million. If we go out to the 100% stock portfolio, number you're not going to believe, but it's 224 million versus 160 million uh, with the uh, the four-fund strategy. Uh, and let's remember that, that uh, the S&P 500 over that period ended up at $17 million. And when you look at the small difference, I've said it before, I'll say it again, you look at the relatively small difference in risk that you take. Now, there's the risk of a loss, and the loss in a declining market is not huge between the S&P 500 and the all-value portfolio, or the worldwide, certainly, and even less with the worldwide uh, strategy. But it is going to have periods of underperformance. And one of these days, we'll create one of those uh, telltale charts, and we'll compare these, because there will be periods that will be very disappointing. But I think the rewards will absolutely be worth it. My hope is this, that I've introduced you to the distribution tables sufficiently uh, that you'll be motivated to, to dig in and, and look at them. Uh, there's, there's no magic to any of it. It is simply taking the historical returns of these different equity asset classes and we really aren't uh, arranging them in order to look our very best because we could simply have the money in the small cap value fund and not do anything beyond that. We do, by the way, even show a distribution strategy with a, an all small cap uh, value and a U.S. only small cap value. 
And these are all based on taking the distribution at the beginning of the year. But you will see other tables that we've done that, that, uh, that reflect uh, taking distribution at the end of the year. You will also, in our next discussion, uh, we will talk about variable distributions. The distribution strategy that my wife and I use, and I know that a lot of other people who are doing this on a mechanical basis use, and um, as far as I'm concerned, it is the ultimate financial luxury in retirement, the ability to use the variable strategy. We'll have lots of tables there for you to look at as well, and, uh, and then we'll be off to the races on topics that don't take all of these numbers. But for the handful of you, maybe it's 5% of you that are within a few years of retirement, or maybe it's another 5% who were recently retired, uh, or maybe it's somebody who's been retired for 20 years and wants to figure out a better way. These distribution tables are powerful. And I ask you not just to think in terms of 51 years, but look at shorter periods of time. When I look at them because of my age and because I've never taken very good care of my health, I don't plan to live a long time. If I get 10 more years, I'll be about even with, uh, with John Bogle. That would be, I'd feel pretty good. But when I think of 10 years and I look at the different 10-year periods, I mean, let me just grab one for a second, just to, to remind you how different they could be and how important it is for you to realize how different they could be. But I look at the 100% stock portfolio. It starts, this is the, by the way, the all value. It, it starts in 1970 at the end of that first year, a million, 21,000. By the end of the decade, 2.6 million. Oh, by the way, not to be overlooked, it fell quite a bit too at the end of 74. It was down to 865,000. But that was about $100,000 better than some of those other strategies. By the end of the next day, decade, after ending the first at 2.6, it's 17.4. The next decade is 44.7. The next decade is 98. Whoa, 44.7 to 98. And the next decade is 221. And then along comes the last $3,000 profit. Uh, to 224. Remember, you're taking a lot of money out in those uh, the latter years. So, so I hope you'll take the time to to peruse those, study those. We're looking for questions at the end of this series, which includes everything from the ultimate buy and hold to the variable distributions, which we'll do next week. We're looking for questions. We're going to gather those together, and those Q, that Q&A uh, will be a, a long one or it'll be a series of them, but it is to answer the important questions of this series because these, as we've said, we think are the most important questions that we try to answer 
in terms of planning for your financial future. I always want you to know how much I appreciate you being with me. I appreciate those of you who are telling others about We're Talking Millions. The new book continues to get really good reviews. And uh, and I appreciate the folks who have suggested folks go to our website, friends, family, and of course the contributions many of you have made. Thank you very much for those as well. And thanks to the crew that that keep all this going. These tables, Daryl Balls has done a yeoman's job of getting these tables put together and there are many more to come. So uh, stick with us. We'll, We'll keep working to help you. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.